Today's first reading is Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The man of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with his generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of the Lord. Today's sermon reading is Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything, do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth, and everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he has threatened. 
This is the word of the Lord. So today is the 8th of May. It is uh, Mother's Day, Woman's Day, and we congratulate each one of you. And it's also the birthday of my eldest daughter. Wow, isn't that cool? All of those in one day. So uh, we also welcome each one of you who have been able to join with us today. And also those of you who are joining on Zoom, we uh, look very much forward to that moment when we can see you again in person. And we love getting together and taking these opportunities to, it's not going back to normal or a new normal. I remember once I wrote an article for our local newspaper when they were first talking about the concept of a new normal. And I said, those two words are irreconcilable. If it's going to be new, it's not normal. And if it's normal, it's not going to be new. And uh, you see how my mind works. But what I do know is the opportunity to come back together and to experience Christian fellowship, interacting with one another, is a very important thing to do. And one other thing I want to just clarify and mention as well is next week our service is not here in this building, but rather it's at the church retreat in Einzing. And the uh, service there starts at 10 o'clock. You're all welcome to uh, be a lovely journey. Come and join us if you're not going to be there for the retreat weekend. Um, and as we look today, I want us to continue in our study of the book of Jonah. We've looked at this for two weeks. Chapter 1, the main concept which was contained in chapter 1 is the idea of God being a personal God. The word that's repeated again and again in that chapter is the word Lord written in English in capital letters, thereby the translators alerting us to the fact that the Hebrew name for God there is Yahweh or Jehovah as we would call it. And that means very simply a God who is personal. That name is introduced to us as Moses meets with God at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And there as he turns to God after he has met him and says, If I go and do what you've asked me to do, the people will ask me, And who is the God who is sending me to you? What is his name? And to that God introduces himself as Yahweh, as Jehovah, as I am who I am, I will be your personal God. Chapter 1. And he learned, Jonah, that one cannot flee from this personal God. And the providence of God followed him and moved in his life. And then in chapter 2, we have this concept where Jonah is in the sea, and the most of that chapter is made up of his prayer, and one can follow his prayer as he moves from the idea of looking at life passing from him to all of a sudden realizing this God, this personal God, is not yet finished with his life. And this personal God then, he says, you have 
taken me. You have redeemed me. You have brought me from the very edge of death. And he realizes he is still alive. And remember that phrase he used for us. And he says, those who choose to serve other gods. He says, they may receive what those gods are. But what you give up is the very presence of God. This very, what did we call that? The very hesed of God. It is a word in Hebrew which only describes God. His loving kindness. The idea of God loves us, not because he's just love, but because he wants to. You ever thought of that? God loves us because he wants to. It tells us something great about God. And then in this chapter, chapter 3, as it has been read to us, I would say that as we look at the structure, we will find that it really is almost totally about repentance. You see, if we read the other scripture where Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12 refers to the book of Jonah. And of course, one of the great references that is, he comes and he doesn't use it as a parable or as a moral teaching. He uses it as a historical event because he says, just as Jonah was, so will the Son of Man be. Just as so will. Historic event, historic event. But the second verse, verse 42, also records the fact that the people of Nineveh repented. And this repentance, the way he's describing it, is something that is going to last and we will find again, as he speaks about they, these people who repented, would be able to stand at the day of judgment and actually provide a judgment for those who have listened to the word of God, but not repented. And if you look at the structure of chapter 3, if you take your Bibles and look at it with us, there you find the first two verses, that paragraph, really talking about a second chance that comes to Jonah. And then the other verses that follow on right up through the the verse five are all about the message, but the center of that, actually half of the verses, beginning in verse five and continuing on to verse nine, are fully about repentance. And we will find that repentance is described twice in this chapter. Once generally as the people do, and then as the king leads in repentance. And then verse 10, is God's response to, to repentance. Well, let's look at that in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah again the second time, saying, this is an amazing truth as it begins to, uh, to reveal to us more about God, is that God is prepared to work with his people and give them a second chance. All the way through the fleeing away from God and then God following him and God arranging the storm and his being in the water, a great fish prepared and his repentance and then unceremoniously, however we want to explain, the fish brought him out on the land, there he was. A second chance. And as we look at that, I'm just wondering this morning, how many of us, have needed a God 
who gives us a second chance. I don't know about you, but I know this person, Dennis, did not get everything right. And I needed second and maybe multiple times of second chance. But what is speaking to us here is about a God who is prepared to give his people a, a, another chance, another opportunity. But as we look at these things, we realize that a second chance has some conditions with it, doesn't it? For example, here, we're going to find as we read on that verse 2 is almost identical to what he is asked to do in chapter 1. A second chance doesn't mean that the rules have changed. God is still God, and we are still those who serve him. It does a second chance doesn't mean that, well, God has simply swept under the rug everything that was displeasing to him. A second chance doesn't mean God isn't looking for change. It's still God there. The other thing which I think is very important about second chance is that God also speaks and he gives him this same message to give, but also more than that, he starts at a different place. One of the things I think I've found consistently among those who are following Christ, those who know Jesus as Savior and go through a time when things are not working with their faith and not working with it, and they need a second chance, an opportunity, many times as you sit down with those persons, they think they will express something like, if I can just get back to where I was, if I can somehow, as God would lead me and work in my life, if I, can just, if I can just return to where I was before all of this happened. As an old geezer, with many second chances in life, let me tell you and share what I have found, is second chances never go back to where you were before. Second chances begin at the very moment and place one finds ourselves as God comes. From there we begin. And from that moment we don't go back here and begin again to follow God. No, from that very moment of the second chance we are then following Him. Sometimes that means there's a bit of a different perspective or diagonal or path in which we are following to that which God is leading us to. But we look and we find and God is moving and so we begin in that way. A second chance. And the other thing I would say about second chances, at least what I have seen in life, is second chances are normally like a window. They are not without end. But they are a window of opportunity. And very frequently as we see God coming, for example, the message that he's going to preach to Nineveh is, 40 days, no longer, 40 days, and a second chance coming from God as often as I have seen in life, and people with whom I have spoken re would reflect this truth as well, is that is like a window, sometimes it's like any decision-making process, and all of a sudden, after you made the decision, new information comes, and what does one do with that? And in this case, that new information is God showing us 
Something needs to change. Those are some of the most important decisions we ever make in life. But normally they are with a window of opportunity of when it can begin and when it will end. So he gives him a second chance. And I'm very thankful that this chapter talks about a God, a personal God, who's going to give a second chance to Jonah and, of course, also to us. But then look what happens. The message that he preaches, starting there in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh. We haven't talked much about Nineveh, but if you study it in your uh, any place in your history, a biblical history or other history, it will be identified as probably at this time the largest city in that world. It certainly had the most power, but its people were also noted as being notoriously evil or cruel as they overtook other kingdoms. But it was a large city. And so he goes and he says to them, now go and preach. And so he went according to the Lord's word. And he journeys and listened to the message. Very simple. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You know, it was not a message of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you people of Nineveh. No, it was a much more direct message, and the message was within a time frame, and the message brought the judgment of God coming. It's an amazing idea, isn't it, that God would notify someone that there is an end coming, and at the after that end there is this judgment. And of course, the amazing thing is that as the people heard uh, Jonah speaking, they understood this message was from God. You see, for us to understand, like the Ninevites did, that they were guilty, and should they be overthrown, they realized this was going to be a severe judgment. In that sense, it's kind of the context or the idea that the Bible again and again communicates that we as humans, we as men and women, are lost before God. And there is a judgment. We don't like talking about judgment in 2022. We think it's judgmental. We think it's harsh. But life, God has only given us X number of days, each one of us, and we need to be prepared for that. Now, the amazing thing that I found, I find personally, this next verse in verse 5, one of the most amazing verses in this chapter. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They heard from Jonah, but they believed God. At that moment, as Jonah spoke, God the Holy Spirit would have been working in their hearts and their lives and their understanding to know fully that this was a message, this was a word that was coming from God. And it's going to lead to repentance. It's something the Bible shows again and again. You think about in the New Testament, Peter, as he denies Christ Jesus three times, 
just before the crucifixion. And then he runs away and there's this time he goes fishing and then the Lord appears and the disciples say it's the Lord and he swims across from his boat to the shore and by the time they get there, there's this incredible conversation that is overheard and recorded where Jesus is asking him, do you love me? And in the end, of course, the beauty of it in the Greek language is he's asking him the first two times, do you love me like God loves you? Sacrificially. And the man has just failed God and he has denied this very God who's risen from the dead three times in a row before the rooster would crow in the morning. And so he answers him back using another Greek word for love, meaning I love you like a, a man can love his friend. And the Lord Jesus turns and he says again, do you love me like God loves you? And you can hear the cry of the heart. Oh Lord, you know me. You know, and uses the word, I love you like a man loves his friend. And the greatness of God then is demonstrated in the third time when Jesus asks him, do you love me? He moves and he takes Peter's word. And he says, do you really love me then? Like one man can love his friend. That is enough. This God coming to mankind and meeting with us on a level where we can understand. Or if you take in Acts chapter 16, the jailer in Philippi, when Paul and his friends were been put in prison and they are singing at midnight hymns and all of a sudden God sends an earthquake. Isn't that a beautiful concept? Shaking until the doors open. Ah, I've got a wonderful illustration, but I can't. Time is gone, uh, or soon will be gone. But after coffee, he asked me about that illustration, about the jail shaking, and I will tell it to you. But as it shook, and then the jailer comes running in, going to kill himself, because at that time, if any prisoner escaped, he paid with his own life ready to kill himself, and Paul shouts out, don't do that, we are all here. And the man who's seen the shaking of the prison, shaking and the doors opening and the prisoners say, this is beyond human, this is a God thing, and he cries out, what must I do to be saved? You see, he had also believed God. He had heard this or seen this, but he believed God. And because he believed God, he was ready to move. The Bible is filled with those examples of David as he repents. And he writes Psalm 115, Oh God, cast me not from your presence. Restore unto me a spirit. Renew my salvation. You see, the Bible is full of people just like Jonah, just like the Ninevites, just like us. But then you look at their response, the first part of that response, it says they believed God and then they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. A fast would have meant very simply they stopped eating and drinking. In other words, what they were going to do now, as the Bible begins to describe for us what repentance looks like, it's going to give a basic description in this verse and then the following four verses as the king repents, it's going to walk us right through what a repentance would look like. 
and they say they put on sackcloth or they stop eating and drinking. In other words, what they're going to say by stopping eating and drinking is this is so serious that I am going to stop the normal functions of life to show that I understand this is the most important thing. And then they put on sackcloth or that which a person would put on to demonstrate that they were mourning or grieving or sorry. So they've said, this is important. And I am grieving because it's so important. And then it goes on in verse 6, it picks up and says, the king also had heard what, what the message that had come from Jonah. And then look at what he does. It's so descriptive for us. He rose from his throne, he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the dust or the ashes. He, the king of the greatest city in the earth at that time, when he heard the message and he believed God, he understood, now I have to do with a God who is greater in authority than me. And the very first thing he did was he stepped down from his throne and he took off that robe which signified he was the king and he put on sackcloth that said, I too am repenting, I too am sorry, I too am grieving, and he sat in the ashes or the dust. If we could put that into a more, for those of us who are not kings, a more of an understandable sense, at that moment the king put his pride and personal value aside and chose to accept what God had said. And that led him to prepare and what he did next was he gave a proclamation or a decree that went out to the people and he asked them to do the very same things. As you read through there it says both the people and the animals. No drink, no water, no food, fasting. And then put on sackcloth as well, this idea that what we are now going to do, this process of repentance is so important that I stop the normal passage of everyday life, those things which are normally there, eating and drinking, and I say, no, not until I have dealt with this that God is showing me. Repentance, you see, is a huge thing. Let me pause just there, and I don't know how many of you have read there's a very famous sermon, unfortunately, or sorry for many of you, it was preached by someone in the States called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. It took me years and years before I read it because I didn't like the title. And then when I read it, what they said in the, the, the sermon itself is quite strong. But then when you read the description that had been written about that moment as the person preached, they said he had, it was a total manuscript sermon and he had stood on one foot with his chin in his fist like this, reading in a monotone, and as he got into the sermon, all of a sudden, this moment that is described here in verse 5, and they believed God began to happen. And you see these pillars across our church 
They said literally people got up out of their chairs, ran to the pillars, and wrapped their arms around the pillars, crying out to God, save me! Because they were afraid that they would fall into a place apart from God. It wasn't the sermon. It wasn't the words. It wasn't the way it was delivered. It was God who came. And he says here, call fast. Put on the sackcloth. Show that you are sorry and that you are grieving. And then he goes further and he says to them, call out fervently or strongly to the Lord, to God. And then let everyone, it either says in the New International, give up or to turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hand. Actually, it's the same word used four times in these following verses. Twice he's going to talk about either giving up or turning from the people. So he's going to say, what you're doing evil, get it out of your hands and turn to come to God. And then he's going to refer in this verse 9 to twice where he says, and maybe when God sees, he will turn and forgive. The idea of repentance being a turn, a leaving it, a departing from it, and a going of another direction. So vital. And so he comes, and this is an amazing feat or truth that he is talking about. Um, As you read through it, he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence due to his hands. And then verse 9 begins with this little phrase, who knows? And I thought, wow, how does that fit into such a proclamation from the king? And so I looked the word up. And you know what the word is? It's a word our children used when they were teenagers. Well, at least they used the English version of it. When they were teenagers or about that time, I remember two of them using it as you get into a discussion and they got to the point they didn't know what else to say. They would use this word, which is the same same pronunciation word, with, of course, the different meaning. Oh, yada, 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 yada. That's literally the Hebrew word, yada. Who knows? But actually, as I looked it up, what it meant was something a bit deeper than the English communicates to us. They said, to know or to have experienced the difference between good and evil. To know, to have experienced the difference between good and evil. Between right and wrong. And what he, the king, is reflecting Now we need to demonstrate to God that we have heard God, we have believed God, and now we are confessing by repenting. We know the difference between right and wrong, between good and evil, when we're choosing God. Who will know? You see, because I think they understood this is their hope that God, who knows the distinction between good and evil, oh my. And then as I was looking at the word, I realized that one of the places, the first places in the Bible it was actually used is right at the end of the account of Adam and Eve as he's placing them outside the garden where he says, 
And it's very interesting. In these two verses at the end of Jonah chapter 3, it uses the plural name for God. And in that account, as it's recorded in Genesis 3, God, the Trinity, speaks to themselves. And they said that man has become like us, knowing the difference between good and evil. Therefore we will place them outside the garden, lest they take of the tree of life and live forever. You see, to know the difference between good and evil and have a life that never ends means you would never repent. And the answer for the knowledge of good and evil is repenting and God, who's a God of mercy, seeing us repent. And then this other lovely word they said, and when they, when God saw what they did, that they had confessed, they had stopped, they had turned, how they had turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster. And that word relented is translated that way or also I think when you some in the, one of the translations also uses even a more effective word I think in the New International would call it and God would have not only mercy but compassion you see what the king is saying is the judgment is right we call upon the God of mercy and compassion in the New Testament, it's a different word because it's in Greek rather than Hebrew, but it has the very same meaning, a God of compassion. You find it as Jesus talks about the father in the parable of the prodigal son. It says, as he saw the son, and that's a beautiful description of repentance, he came and realized, he said, I am eating the feeding pigs and eating their food. And it says, I will rise up and go back and tell my father I have sinned against him and against heaven. He's here. He chooses to return. And it says, as the father saw him, he had compassion. And if you look that word up, you'll find it has the very same meaning as this Hebrew word. But there it even goes further. It meant that this is a compassion that is coming from the very depth of the being. Remember how in that old antiquated English it says, and God loves you from his bowels? I see most of you haven't read that verse recently. That's actually what it says. You see, the Hebrews and the Greeks realize that the center of emotion is here. You have a death in your family, you will hurt here, not here. And this word that where he has compassion means he has felt that from the very source of his emotion. In other words, what it is saying is as God sees his people turn and repent, then God, in the depth of his emotion, it's as if he's crying out and he comes and he forgives because he's seen this change. Of course, repentance does that mean that if you repent more, you get redeemed more. No, no, no. It is dependent on this characteristic of God. You see, in chapter 1, God's a personal God. In chapter 2, God is this God of loving kindness who's working in our life brings us to him. But in chapter 3, the promise is 
if we repent, he sees, he hears, and because he is a God who loves from the depth of his being, he has compassion and he forgives. Isn't that an amazing hope? God loves each one of us with this deepness of his person. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and this afternoon as we have come to your house. And we thank you even this account and record of Jonah going and preaching to Nineveh. How then they heard the words, they believed you. We think as you describe faith in Hebrews chapter 11, you say those who would please God must believe he is and that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And Lord, we thank you that throughout your Bible, you again and again show us this characteristic and this person of you who we can trust because God, if we come in our earnestness and true repentance, that you have promised to forgive, not because we deserve it, but because you are a God of compassion, of loving kindness and justice. So we worship you today and we pray that you would guide our time together in Jesus' name, amen.